Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today we're talking with one of the giants of musical theater. Composer and lyricist Stephen Sondheim's name can be found on playbills for such productions as A Little Night Music, Company, Sweeney Todd, and many, many more. He wrote the lyrics for West Side Story and Gypsy. He's been honored with an Academy Award, eight Tony Awards, eight Grammy Awards, and the Pulitzer Prize. He's in St. Louis to receive yet another, the St. Louis Literary Award, sponsored by St. Louis University. It's a pleasure to welcome Stephen Sondheim to our studio. Another award, just what you need for the mantle, right? <laughs> I don't have a mantle. I have a low table. A low table. Well, it's a crowded table to be sure. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Sure. It's a privilege and a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you. You know, and when I thought about our conversation, I thought about what a pleasure it must be for you to get up every day and realize how many millions of people you have given so much pleasure to over the decades. Well, I don't think of them. Uh, but then when somebody comes up to me, and says that, a stranger, then I feel, you know, very pleased. I'm not even proud, just pleased. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been just an enormously <clears throat> successful career. I don't think it can be matched by anybody, certainly not too many people. But it all got started a little bit differently. From what I've read about you, Steve, the, the early childhood was not a, a particularly pleasant one. No, my parents were divorced when I was 11. And <clears throat> my mother got custody of me, and she was... A difficult lady. Yeah. And you spent a lot of time alone. And what I wanted to get to was, you know, how that lonely childhood uh, really influenced what you became. I didn't feel lonely. I never did. First of all, I went to boarding schools and summer camp. And so I was surrounded by peers all the time. I was popular and I enjoyed vir virtually every aspect of them, you know, from academics to sports. So I never... I was not aware that I was lonely. Everybody, everybody who's ever talked about my childhood said he was lonely. I guess I must have looked lonely. But <laughs> when I think back, I, don't, I didn't feel lonely at all. Well, when, when did the music become a part of your life? Ah, that's, I'm not quite sure. When I was <clears throat> five, six, seven years old, I took piano lessons, which is what every nice Jewish boy on the West Side did, and uh, would give little recitals, that sort of thing. Um, and I guess maybe that infiltrated. Um, I got seriously interested in music in my teens. And um, when I was in prep school, well, I continued piano and I would give concerts around Pennsylvania. And, um, but still, it was, it was passive. It wasn't, I didn't want to compose until I was about 16. And then I started to get uh, <clears throat> the composing bug. And that led you to the Broadway-type musicals, musical uh, productions. Well, actually, the music that most influenced me at first was movie music. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a big movie buff, and, um, and so it was the scores of people like Franz Voxman and Max Steiner and Bernard Herrmann that got me going. Um, now, of course, movie music is very much influenced by... Uh, what shall I say, theater music, by which I don't mean musical comedy, I mean everybody from Wagner through Strauss, et cetera, et cetera. It, so it was through them. And then I started to get into classical recordings. And I collected records, particularly of the 19th century, Romantic era. And um, uh, so, so that's how I got immersed. Then I took a, a, a course in college my first year. It was an elective course in music. Uh, the music department, well, I went to Williams College, and there were only, at that time, 1,300 students. And um, 
uh, the music department consisted of two men, one who taught mu- uh, taught um, piano and uh, the other of whom taught composition. And I went, and his name was Bob Barrow, Robert Barrow. And the very first day I went into the class, he played for us <clears throat> La Mer, the Debussy piece. Mm-hmm. And he said, all right, this is called the sea. Does it sound like the sea to you? Doesn't sound like the sea to me. He said, what this is about is not about the sea. It's about the whole tone scale. And he took all the romance out of music and just taught what music was made of as a craft. And I fell in love. And I thought, this is what I want to do with my life. He made it, by taking the romance out, he made it so romantic I couldn't wait to do it. What about those who put romance into it, though? If you were a movie buff, people mm-hmm. like uh, Jerome Kern, Cole Porter, and George Gershwin, people like that. Well, I don't know if they put romance. First of all, the romance isn't really in the music. It's in the lyrics, if anything. Uh, but, you know, oh, I love their stuff because I just, well, they're, they're, my, they're my favorite composer. You're, you're ticking them off one by one there. One of the things that I learned in getting ready for our discussion was uh, your association with Oscar Hammerstein, the great lyricist of Rodgers and Hammerstein. And I, I, I gather from what I've read that he was enormously important in your development. Oh, he was second father. To me, he was a mentor, uh, and he and, and his wife were sort of surrogate parents because uh, my father had remarried and I didn't see him very much. Uh, except maybe uh, when he had visiting privileges. And my mother and I did not get along. And uh, But we lived in Pennsylvania about three miles from the Hammersteins. They had a son my age, Jimmy. And so Jimmy and I became great friends. And um, I found myself spending more time over at the Hammersteins than at home. And Oscar must have sensed something in me that had to do with wanting to write songs. And so he... I wrote a show in prep school, George School, and um, I gave it to him to, uh, uh, to uh, I won't say criticize, but critique, I guess is the word. And he was a producer of other people's shows as well as his own. And so I went to bed that night knowing that in the morning he would call me and say he was going to produce. I was 15 years old. He was going to produce the show, and I'd be the first 15-year-old to have a show on Broadway. And so I went over. And I said, now, you know, I don't want you to treat this as if I was your friend or a friend of the family. Treat this as if it's just a a script that crossed your desk and you just read it. He said, oh, in that case, it's the worst thing I ever read. And I saw my lower lip tremble, I guess. And he said, I didn't say it wasn't talented, but if you want to know what's wrong with it, let's start with the first stage direction. And he went through it as if it were a professional script. And I've said often, and I'm given to hyperbole, but I really believe I learned more in that afternoon than most songwriters learn in a lifetime because I was getting a distillation of this guy's experience all crowded into four hours, five hours, and I was at that age, as many 15-year-olds are, a sponge for knowledge, and I just soaked it all. I can remember things he, he said that day to this day. And they've all stood me in good stead. Was this before Oklahoma, Carousel, no, this South was, Pacific? This was, curious enough, they were writing Carousel at the time. Mm-hmm. Oscar decided that, that there was going to be, at the end of the first act, when they go off to the island, there was going to be a treasure hunt on the island. And I was very into puzzles, games, and treasure hunts. So I was his, puzzle, uh, his treasure hunt consultant for Carousel. 
So what, out of this, that was a real nice clam bake. Is that what came out of no, all that? Of that? No, it, it supposedly, it supposedly clam bake led into the treasure hunt, and but they cut the scene anyway. Right. How did he inspire you as a lyricist? It seems to me that your lyrics and his are are, are quite different, quite oh, different they're, stylistically. They're, oh, they're entirely different. Yeah. Um, uh, first of all, inspire is not the word he taught, uh, but. What I what I did was I tried to of course the first lyrics I wrote were all about nature images you know willow trees and birds and everything that he wrote about all the time and he said you know you're writing like me write what you feel don't try to write what I feel write what you feel and I said well I'm a city he said write what you feel and um, he said if you do you'll be 99% ahead of the game of the others. He put it in a competitive way, so that if I wrote what I felt, I'd be a better lyricist than other people my age. And he was right in the sense that you have to write what what you know, and not necessarily the experience, but the feelings. So from that day on, I didn't imitate anybody, including him. And though he was a city boy, which most people can't believe, considering the sort of bucolic writing he did, um, he was a absolute. He was a New York boy, and he was articulate and quite often sharp-tongued, not in his work. Uh, and so I wrote like what I, I wrote what I felt and what I observed. And even though it's naive stuff, the age of fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, it's still personal. So that's why our our styles are entirely different. He's, it seems to me, and I'm not sure the term is correct, but he was a master of what I call the internal rhyme. Does that make sense to you, or the? No, he didn't or, use them. No, you, really? he didn't use very many internal rhymes. Really, it seems no, to the, me that the, was the, a lot the, of it. The, nah, the field of internal rhyming <clears> is <throat> Cole Porter and and uh, things. Uh, Oscar, of course, everybody uses some internal rhymes, mm-hmm. but he was not very interested in rhyme. Uh, I feel you know his lyrics are very plain rhymed. You know, it's day and may and say. Mm-hmm. He wasn't interested in trick rhymes or unusual rhymes or rhymes that pointed attention to themselves, uh, as some of us are, as Cole Porter was, as I sometimes am. Mm. <clears throat> but that's just interest. He really tried to imitate the way people talk in rhyme, and people don't talk in elaborate rhymes. Yeah. I'd like to play a couple of uh, things that you've done. Uh, uh, how many songs do you think you've written over the no years? Idea. Yeah. no idea. No idea. Would... would Send in the clowns be the one that uh, that everyone knows, do you think? And are you tired of people asking you that question? No, that's, no, that's, that's true. It's, it's certainly the one enormous hit single I ever had. And um, so in that sense, yeah. It's a, but it, it's, a, it's a song I like. Um, and yes, I'm tired of hearing it, but it's a song I like a lot. Would you mind listening to just a few seconds of it? No, uh, just to remind ahead. folks, this is Dame Judy Dench, whom uh, I've never heard... Uh, sing this before. She performed it in London when she was uh, in a little night music there. Let's listen to a little of her singing it and then we'll move on. Isn't it rich? Are we a pair? Me here at last on the ground You in midair Send in the clouds. Isn't 
Isn't it bliss? Dame Judy Dench singing Send in the Clowns from a little night music written by our guest Stephen Sondheim. Uh, that, that one really took off. You've had Frank Sinatra sing it, Judy Collins, Barbara Streisand. Well, it didn't take off right away. It was, in fact, it was Judy Collins who, who uh, sort of made it popular. She, she sang it because it was sort of folky and the kind of thing she sang. And then Sinatra heard that, and he liked it a lot, so he picked it up. And once he did, then it became a big hit. Uh, that, you know, in those days, hits happened quite often by accident, by who sang them. Mm. You know, um, starting in the 1950s, with the singer-songwriter era, the, the, they became indistinguishable from each other, the singer and the song. But in, when I grew up and was writing the theater, I mean, all of, this was in 1970, but uh, 73, but uh, nevertheless, it was, it was a different matter. And, you know, Hello, Dolly became famous only because Louis Armstrong picked it up, mm-hmm. and then his recording, and then everybody recorded it. So that's the way hit songs were made in the musical theater in the days of the singer-songwriter. It seems to me that a lot of your music, <clears throat> it's difficult to stand alone because it is so specific to the, uh, to the program, the show itself. Yes, uh, that's true. I, you know, that's something from Oscar I got, which is write specifically for the character. He said each song should be a little plan in itself, with a sort of premise and then, well, it's like sonata form, a premise and then a development and then a conclusion, and that every song should progress from one point to another or it should not just be static, et cetera, et cetera. That all has to do with character and situation. So you're right, even sending the clowns. I get letters still from people saying, I like the song, but what's it about? Mm -hmm. Well, if you know what the situation is, you don't have to ask that question. But if you don't, you wonder, what is this sending the clown stuff? And yet it can still stand alone yeah, very, very it, well. No it does, about it. Yeah. But, but, that, but that's unusual. Yeah. I have to take a break in a moment, but with <clears> you, <throat> what comes first, the words or the music? Oh, they come together. The, the answer to that question, which is in a show I wrote called Merrily Wrong, is the contract. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, they come simultaneously. I mean, you, uh, the way I write, you know, I've discussed the scene endlessly and the shows endlessly with the book writer, and we decide where the song should, a song should go, and generally what should it be about, and generally what will it accomplish. And then sometimes I can get a, a, a refrain idea, refrain being a repeated uh, phrase that holds the song together, or I will fiddle at the piano and get something either melodic or harmonic, particularly harmonic, that uh, uh, suggests the, the temperature of the scene, and from that, can perhaps get a melodic idea, which in its rhythm will suggest some kind of lyrical phrase. <clears throat> I'm very into inflection. Um, you, you can get, get melodic ideas from the way, just the way people talk. And so sometimes you merely write down a sentence, like write down a sentence, write down a sentence. That right away suggests a rhythm and a m- melody with a Flow and if you listen to Steve Rice, some Steve Rice music, he ma- he does that uh, specifically. He makes music out of the way people talk. He takes snippets of the way people talk, and by manipulating them, makes music out of them. Real music, real music indeed. We're talking with Stephen Sondheim. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment. We have to take a break. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, ninety point seven KWMU. 
Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. And welcome back to our conversation with uh, Stephen Sondheim, composer, lyricist, uh, well-known for so many wonderful shows that he has uh, put together. And, and uh, getting back to our conversation about performances, I, it's also been my observation. You've corrected me about, about just about everything I've said today. But it seems to me that what you write oftentimes is very, very difficult for performers to sing. Uh, that, I have that reputation, and yet if you – sometimes it's true that sometimes the songs are difficult. But if you talk to the performers that who've sung my stuff, what they will generally tell you is it sounds difficult until you start working on it. Mm-hmm. And when you start working on it, because I, I'm, I pride myself on being meticulous about giving places to breathe, uh, ways to use the lips and the teeth uh, to pronounce things, uh, at speed of speech, all that – and what sounds difficult quite often turns out to be not. Sometimes the musical uh, aspect of the songs I write is difficult in the sense that uh, there are leaps and s- sort of little surprises that the tunes don't quite go where you expect them to. And I don't do that perversely. It's, I try to keep things fresh. I, I think it's very good, uh, in, not just in songwriting, but in theater writing or any kind of narrative art, to be a step ahead of your audience. If they know what you're going to say next, they're very likely to get bored. And if, if they don't know what you're going to say next, they may be startled and a little uh, discombobulated, but that's the way to do it. So sometimes I do that in a musical phrase. We, I'm going to play another clip now. We can talk about it afterwards. This is uh, Green Finch and Linnet Bird performed by Sarah Rice from the original cast of uh, Sweeney Todd. Let's hear a little of that. Sarah Rice performing from the original cast in uh, Sweeney Todd. A couple of things about that, talking about difficult songs to sing. That sounds to me like one that is just that. It uh, sounds difficult and also operatic. Well, it's, it's not difficult to sing. Of course, the trill is, uh, is an operatic device that you have to know how to do as a singer. She was not a particularly trained singer. She was just a girl who had been in some musicals. So, and that's the proof is in the pudding. Um, it, it's not hard to sing. It sounds operatic partly because of where her voice is placed and because of the style of the song. But as far as a melody goes, no, it's not hard to sing. How do you get into a story like the story of Sweeney Todd, which is just brutal? <laughs> murder, mayhem. Well, murder, mayhem, and humor. I, um, I, I saw, uh, I went to London. 
Uh, I think it was, I think it was, for, yeah, for the production of, first production of Gypsy there. And um, I heard there was this Grand Guignol uh, play at a, at a theater just outside of London, and I'd always wanted to see Grand Guignol. And I went there, and it wasn't Grand Guignol at all. It was, in fact, Sweeney Todd, a straight play version. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sweeney Todd is a, is a story that's been around since 1845 and has gone through many changes. It's been done. It was very popular during the 19th century in different versions. Different actors would write their own versions of the story. And finally, uh, this, <clears throat> this uh, version was written by a guy named Christopher Bond, who was, in fact, an actor. And... Um, uh, and so I went to see it, and I, as I say, I didn't expect to see this, and I saw it, and I thought, woo, this would make a, f- a, a, a musical that would be fun because, you know, yes, it is about murder and all that, but it's, it's a melodrama, mm-hmm. and uh, it doesn't pretend to be real. It's a fable. That's what a melodrama is, and I love melodrama. I loved melodramatic movies, and I love melodramatic plays, and I thought, it would it would sing, and so uh, I got d- all the versions of it from 1845 to uh, 1970, whenever it was, and um, uh, and I got Hugh Wheeler, who was a Britisher, uh, <clears throat> with whom I'd written a show, Little Night Music, and um, and so we, we we did it together. Well, it seemed to work. <laughs> it seemed yeah, to I'll, work out okay. <laughs> I'll tell you why it works, uh, and uh, I'm not immodest or modest about my own work, it's the story. It is a wonderful plot. You really want to know what's going to happen next, and when it does, you're startled or shocked or whatever it is. But it absolutely holds together as a plot. And not very many shows, particularly musicals, have that kind of narrative force. They don't have plots as strong as that because that's not what they're about. But I got... So that's, that's really... What makes that show work so well? And it works uh, on every level, on a professional level, amateur level, school levels. It's because of the story. Yeah. Let's take a couple of calls. We have some listeners who want to talk to Stephen Sondheim. We'll begin with Bob calling from St. Louis. Uh, Bob, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, I want to uh, refer to one of my most exciting theatrical moments uh, in any musical, and that was when not having early, early in the run of of uh, a little night music, I heard for the first time soon now and later, and uh, was awed. Uh, I, it certainly does everything that Mr. Sondheim says it does in terms of advancing the characters, but the the musicality, the way it fit together, uh, my jaw dropped. Thank you for your call. A jaw-dropping episode. Well, thanks, thanks for the compliment. I'm very proud of that song because of the puzzle aspect of it, of how this, the words now, soon, and later are used and then reused in different uh, <clears throat> contexts. And so that, that was a lot of fun to work out. The real problem in working it out was how to make the three tunes go together because uh, for those listeners who don't know, each... It, each song is a separate song, now, later, soon, uh, or in, in a different order. It's, it's later first, and then now, and then soon. And then the three songs come together. Now, or- ordinarily, you can tell when a couple of tunes are going to come together and play at the same time, but not in this case because the songs are so different. 
And that was what I wanted to do, is I thought, nobody's going to know that these three songs are going to go together. Well, guess what? When I started, they didn't go together. <laughs> and so uh, it took a good deal of working out. And because I like puzzles, uh, this worked out. Uh, I, I, there was a solution. And that's what, so I'm glad you appreciated that, because that that's exactly what I was trying part. to do. Yeah. Thank you for the call, Bob. You know, you've mentioned puzzles a couple of times, and puzzles to me oftentimes suggest math. And I always hear, I'm not a musician, but math and music go very, very closely together. Math, music, and medicine, the three Ms, they go together. Um, yeah, I, I was going to major in math when I went to college oh. and <clears throat> took this elective course in music my freshman year and met, uh, under Robert Barrow, and it, he changed my life. And I decided not to major in math but to major in music. Yeah. Where does the medicine come in? Oh, it's just, it's just talk to doctors. Many doctors are either amateur, musicians, semi-professional. Mm. Hospitals have orchestras. They just, I, 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 this is my opinion, and maybe yeah. some doctor would say nonsense, nonsense, but I think the three things go together. Yeah, I've never seen, uh, seen them connected that way, but it is interesting the way you point that out. Another call. This one uh, involves uh, our friend Jerry from O'Fallon, Missouri. Go ahead, Jerry. Good afternoon. It's quite an honor to uh, be able to address you. I've been enjoying your music for, uh, for decades, and there's a, a kind of subtle intelligence to both your music and lyrics that I think uh, bears uh, like repeat listening before you kind of really get the entire perspective. And uh, I'm sure it's very difficult to write songs for a musical play that, that have a life outside of that or outside of the context. And, of course, I'm a big jazz fan, so I was always a, a fan of... Uh, I uh, heard both uh, Stan Kenton and uh, Benny Goodman perform uh, Send in the Clowns. And, in fact, about 40 years ago when Benny Goodman was working with a small group, he normally would play uh, another tune from A Little Night Music, uh, You Must Meet My Wife, which was also uh, very effective in his style. So uh, thank you for, uh, for all the art you brought us. Thank you. And I was hoping you'd mention that his, his version of You Must Meet My Wife is just wonderful. And um, uh, uh, most of my songs are not, many of my songs, most, are not taken up by jazz musicians for the very simple reason, because I asked them, that I use jazz harmonies. There's nothing for them to improvise on. The best kinds of tunes for jazz, particularly trios, mm -hmm. is, are songs that are simple musically so that they can start to explore that and expand it and like a, a, a blossom get bigger and bigger into a huge flower. And um, my stuff, I, I'm so influenced by jazz harmonies that uh, uh, they're usually built into the songs, and therefore there's, I, I, I've done the work f for them, and therefore there's no fun for them. At least that's what I've been told more than once. Yeah. One of the uh, great interpreters of your songs, as I see it anyway, is Bernadette Peters. I've seen a lot of her material. Would you agree that she's pretty good at interpreting what you write? Oh, yeah. She's, yeah. She is indeed. She's wonderful. Um, there, there are a couple of singers who, who really like to do my stuff, and she's one of them. Yeah, I'd like to play a clip of her singing just a little bit. Losing My Mind is the name of the song. It's, it's a pretty song, and we're doing it because one of our producers <laughs> sang it years ago, and she wants to hear it again. I think about 
you the coffee cup I think about you I want you so it's like I'm losing my mind the morning Pretty voice. The sun comes up, the coffee cup. Where did the coffee cup come from? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a woman living her whole day. And so the sun comes up, she gets out of bed, and she has a cup of coffee. The song just traverses an entire day. You go from um, uh, A to B to C to D, and you start in the morning, you end up going to bed. And so that's where it comes from. It's, it's, it's the natural thing that you, that you get when you wake up. Well, it makes a lot of sense when you hear from the composer and the lyricist. <laughs> well, Let me tell you that. A couple of things I wanted to talk about with regard to what's going on in, uh, in the world of, of musicals today. Number one. Hamilton. What do you make of that and its success? I don't talk at all ever about any living composer's work. Forgive me. All right. Well, I was getting to the point that it's uh, simply, it seems like it's a new chapter and a, mm-hmm. a new direction for well, the, c- the, Certainly the use of rap in, in the theater is new. Yeah. And that's what's exciting about it. Another element uh, that's uh, much in the news these days, including here in St. Louis, is is and this is connected to you certainly with West Side Story, is the, a, a number of protests have been held, including one at Kent State University just today, because they're not using, they're not using the appropriate uh, ethnic uh, people in these roles. Do you have any thoughts about that? No, first of all, I didn't even find out about that till last night. Uh, it's, uh, that's been done before. The most famous example of that was the production of Miss Saigon, the original production in New York, where there were great protests because Jonathan Price was not an Asian, and he was the leading character. He was supposed to be an Asian um, handler. And um, uh, I just, you know, th- that kind of uh, uh, protest, I, I just find sort of silly. I don't see, just, you know, if, if you carry that to its extreme, then you'd have to say that um, an, an actress couldn't be played by anybody, an actress, okay, and that a mother couldn't be played by somebody who hadn't been a mother. I mean, it's ridiculous. Okay, fair enough. We have a couple more, little time and a couple of more questions here. Ashley writes, I'm getting ready to go to London this weekend to see the new production of Company. Can you talk about the process of rewriting the show to star a woman? What should I look for in particular? Um, it, this was an idea of the director, whose name is Marianne Elliott. <clears throat> and because I think she is certainly one of, if not the best directors in the, in the English-speaking language, uh, I said yes. Uh, I, I have said before, I would, if she asked me to do the telephone directory, I'd musicalize it for her. And so it was her idea. And uh, I started examining. I thought it would be fairly easy to change in a way, uh, in the sense that um, you change, you know, he to she and in the, the pronouns and the lyrics and all that. But then I realized... It has to do much more subtly and much more extensively with attitude. There is a difference, uh, obviously, between a, a woman of 35 feeling the way she does in, in the play and a man of 35, which is what, was, what it was originally. So I, I did quite a lot of um, rewriting, not big stuff, tweaking here and there, changing lyrics, and also because George Firth, who wrote the book, is no longer with us, I did some of that in the book too. And um, it just started previews last week in, in London, and it works very well. 
Our time is winding down. Are you working on anything now? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm working with a playwright named David Ives, um, who, for those who go to the theater a lot, you had, had actually last year he had the play that was done most all, all across the country in the United States called Venus in Furs. And, but he's primarily a humorous writer, a humorist who writes, in, writes short plays. Anyway, he and I have known each other a while. We've been trying to get together to do a musical. We started one, and um, uh, it, didn't, we didn't, it didn't work out for numerous reasons. And so we decided to take two movies by Louis Buñuel, one called The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and the other one called The Exterminating Angel. Both movies, in different ways, are about people trying to find a place to eat. That's what happens. People try to find a place to eat. And um, so we, we've combined them, and <clears throat> we're, we've finished the first act, and David's finished the second act, and I'm about a third of the way into the second act. Does it have a working title? No. We're, we're, we're desperately trying to find a title. In fact, we've batted titles back and forth over the last couple of years, and just before I um, went to London last week, I collated all of them. We have over 50 titles that we've, we've considered, and we're not, we're not really satisfied with any of them. Well, when can I, when can I be thinking about getting tickets? <laughs> well, it, the earliest it would be done, and it's possible, depending on whether we meet the deadlines, would be next April. But um, it's, I don't know whether we'll meet that deadline. We'll look forward to that, Stephen Sondheim. It's been a great pleasure having a chance to talk to you. Continued success. Many more years of wonderful music from Stephen Sondheim. Thank you so much. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.